I have some wonderful websites up about snails because I'm gonna keep Remy. He's cute. You got a snail. I didn't. That's so cute. I didn't get a snail. I found him on our garbage can lid. See, you're nicer <laughs> to me because they're killing all my plants, so I've just been like relocating them to other people's yards. Oh, well. <laughs> You know, it's it's a weird it's a weird time it's right now. Yeah. Have you heard that one song that's like um fuck no it's like Loki fuck 2020. You know what I'm talking about? No, but also not low key, but high key. High key. High key. Definitely, yes. Um, but uh it's uh Avenue Beat Low Key Fuck 2020. <laughs> All right. No, that was awesome. I liked that actually. Um, is that on Spotify? I, I, I think so. Okay. Hold on. I'm gonna. I heard it uh, a couple months ago, and then it just keeps on popping back up. So. Okay. Well, we want to get started. Yes. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for joining. I am Rachel. That's Grace, and we I'm are. I'm Grace. That's Rachel. Miss some misfortunes. I have a nail in my crotch. Sorry. <laughs> I got it. Because that is definitely where you want that. Um, <laughs> where, well, where, where, where are we today? We are today in... We are today. Today. We are today in <laughs> Argentina. <laughs> Any um, are we anywhere specific or because I know I'm in Buenos Aires. No, I'm no. 400 miles away. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. That's why I asked. That's why I was like after I already <laughs> picked it. I was like I didn't even think to ask where yours was. Well, and see, I thought about asking where yours was, but I was like, I don't even know if I'm gonna find something, so I'm going to find something first. Yeah. So, my uh, sources, yes. that word that I was looking directly at, <laughs> but my source is localhistories.org, Argentina. Before Europeans came to Argentina, it was not, like, very, very populated, yeah. but there, were, there was a fairly decent population population of indigenous people in the northwest people grew crops like potatoes and squash they lived in sometimes walled towns and they used metal and made pottery Mm -hmm. Uh, most of the indigenous people lived by hunting animals and gathering plants europeans arrived in what's now argentina in the 16th century several towns were founded in northwest argentina Buenos Aires was founded in 1580 to give access to the sea, but the southern part of Argentina was left basically to the natives 
Finally, in 1776, a new viceroy of the River Plate was formed with Buenos Aires as its capital. In 1806, the British captured Buenos Aires, but they were forced to withdraw. In 1807, they attacked the city again, but they were repelled. Mm -hmm. You know those British. Those darn British. Just like us Americans. (laughs) No kidding. Links between Argentina and Spain weakened in the early 19th century, especially after an... After an... After an... After an... In turn. After 1808, when Napoleon forced the Spanish king to abdicate and made his own brother king of Spain. Finally, on the 25th of May, 1810, the viceroy was deposed in a junta which is, um, I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, but it's a military or political group that rules a country uh, after taking power by force. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took control of Argentina. However, the junta didn't break all of their links with Spain until 1816. The United Provinces of the River Plate was de- declared on um, July 9th, 1816. I almost heard decapitated. I know, I almost said decapitated. I don't know why. <laughs> At first, the United Provinces consisted of what's now Argentina, Bolivia, and Uruguay. Uruguay. However, the new state was divided between Unitarists, who wanted a strong central government, and Federalists, who wanted a loose federation of provinces. Eventually, in the 1820s, the new state broke up. Bolivia became independent in 1825, and Uruguay was created as a buffer state between Argentina and Brazil after a war between the two countries. Mm. In 1835, General Juan Manuel de Rosas became dictator, not director, (laughs) dictator of Argentina. (laughs) Rosas eventually alienated many people in the provinces, and in 1852, a rebellion removed him from power. There's a lot of rebellion and unrest and a lot in this. So... Until the late 19th century, the natives of southern Argentina lived in their traditional way. However, in 1879, General Julio Rica led an army to conquer them. Meanwhile, the first railroad in Argentina was built in 1857. It was followed by a lot of others. There, I think by 1912, there were over 20,000 miles of railroad. Yeah, that, that's the a lot of railroad. Yeah, they made it easier to transport, obviously, um, produce to the coast for export. Argentina exported meat, wool, and grain, and by 1900, it was the richest country in South America. Mm. The population of Argentina boomed partly due to immigrants from Spain and Italy. By the end of the century, the population of Argentina was about 4 million. In the 1920s, it was the seventh richest country in the world. But like the rest of the world... Argentina was affected by the Wall Street crash, you know? Well, yeah. In 1930, the army staged a coup, and General Jose Uruburu... Uruburu. Uruburu. U-R-I-B-U-R-U. Okay, Scooby-Doo. Uruburu. Shit. Uruburu. 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 Mm. <laughs> I don't know why it sounds so dumb when I say it. I'm gonna be just as bad. You're okay. Uruburu. 
became president of Argentina. Argentina. I almost said Argentina. Just move on. This is like in Finding Nemo. That's it. I can't. P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Waste, Sydney. He called an election in 1931, another election in 1937. There were a lot of accusations of electoral fraud when Roberto Ortiz became president with Ramon Castillo as vice president. Ortiz fell ill and had to hand the power over to Castillo, and the army eventually staged another coup. Hmm. Go figure. Yeah. In January of 1944, Argentina severed diplomatic relationships relations with Germany and Japan. Finally, on in March of 1945, Argentina declared war on Germany. After that coup in 1943, Juan Perón, Ron Perón, Perón, gradually emerged as a leader. In 1946, he was elected president. He introduced a number of welfare measures and nationalized industries. He was re-elected in 1951, but gradually lost support. In 1955, there was a revolution called the Revolution of Liberation which forced him to flee abroad. Mm. There were several short-lived governments that followed this, leading to a military dictatorship, which did not bring peace. Yeah, they generally don't. In 1969, rioting broke out in Cordoba, which spread throughout Argentina. In 1973, the army allowed more elections, and the Peronists, who are supporters of Peron, um, Peron. they won. A Peronist called Hector Campora became president, which led to Peron returning from exile, so Campora resigned to make way for him. Mm. More elections were held, and he somehow became president again. However, he died in 1974, and his his widow took power. Under her rule, inflation and unrest continued until the army seized power again. It's just, it's a cycle. Yeah, it's a brutal cycle. Argentina then suffered a brutal military dictatorship during which thousands of people disappeared. Oh, yes. that's not good. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, that's really not good. Yeah. Uh, uh, inflation mm-hmm. continued to rage and Ar- Argentina became heavily indebted. In the early 1980s, despite the recession, protests spread across Argentina to try to divert people's minds from their problems, the Junta uh, invaded the Falkland Islands on in April of 1982. However, the war returned. Uh, it turned into a disaster when mm-hmm. the British basically just quickly recaptured the islands. The Argentine Argentinian economy was fucked at this point. Eventually, they allowed elections in 1983. Uh, Raúl Raúl Alfonsín took office in December of 1983 but he was unable to solve the problem of hyperinflation in in Argentina in 1989 he handed over power peacefully to the next elected president the president following Alfonso was able to curb inflation and privatized and he privatized industry in 2001 to 2002 Argentina suffered a severe recession. However, the economy grew strongly for a few years, and it's still growing steadily. And in October 2007, Cristina 
Kirchner became the first elected woman president of Argentina. And Good today, the population of Argentina is around 45 million. <laughs> that's, that's the history. A lot of people in Argentina. Also, good yes. for them. Female president. Really good for them. Yep. Okay. My story this week is El Patiso Orejuro. Huro. Oh, okay. I don't, I've, I've never heard of this. That translates to the big eared midget. I'm sorry. <laughs> the big eared midget. I don't think that's PC, buddy. It is not. It definitely is not. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um. Go for it. I'm gonna have to share my screen with you to show to show you this guy. Okay. I mean, they could have come up with a nicer name for sure. Uh, yeah. But this was also. I can tell you, this is from the 1890s, so they literally don't care. Okay. (laughs) This is Caetino Santos Godino. Okay. He was born on October 31st, 1896. He does have fairly large ears. He does. Huh. Uh, he was born to Fiore Godino and Lucia Rufo in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I skipped my sources. Yes, you did. My sources are murderpedia.org, typepad.com, wikipedia, bestoftruecrime.com, and criminalgenealogy.blogspot.com. Okay. Which is going to continue now. Sure. He was one of ten children. Damn. Um, damn, damn. Yeah. Yep. And... He, along with his brothers and sisters, had to put up with a lot of abuse from his oh. father's alcoholic tendencies. Yeah. Godino was considered odd from birth. He had numerous physical oddities, such as being physically stunted, with long arms and legs, and with large, as one source said, jug-like ears. Jug-like? Okay. Jug-like. You, wow. you saw the picture. Not that jug-like. That stuck out from his head. Due his due to his father's alcoholism, it is believed that Godino suffered fetal alcohol syndrome. That along uh, with the rest of his family. So they think that they can that can kind of explain why he had physical de- deformities. Did any of his other siblings? Mm-hmm. They all oh, okay. suffered from okay. fetal alcohol syndrome. There is also okay. strong evidence that shows his father contracted syphilis at one point prior to his birth. Oh. This also could have played a contributing role in any of his health issues and physical ab- abnormalities, that's the word. Yeah. It's also said that he had a limited mental capacity and that he was a big target for his father's alcohol-induced violence. Mm. Like one of the major targets. So, while all of this sounds super fun, he also grew up in extreme poverty. During his early years, he was almost constantly on the brink of death with enteritis, I think is what it's called. Uh, spell it. Enteritis. Enteritis. I would say yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> Uh, this apparently um, is an infection that can be caused by eating or drinking contaminated food or water, 
improperly prepared food, poor hygiene or sanitation, or close contact with an infected person or animal. Living in poverty, that can happen. Yeah, I would think so. He began school, like a lot of us, at the age of five, where he was then expelled five times and attended six different schools because of his lack of interest in studying and his rebellious, violent behavior. Uh, Unlike most of us, Dan. Unlike, yes. Five times? Five times he went to six different schools. And nobody thought, let's help this kid? Apparently not. At one point, he just quit going altogether and instead decided to roam the streets. I guess you're right. It was the 1800s, so... Yeah. I mean, late 1800s, but still. He became known to many of the neighborhood as Petiso or Huedo. Don't think I said that right. But like I said before, the big-eared midget. Oh, that sucks. Due to him apparently being viewed as an idiot... Many of the adults just ignored his existence on the streets, but he had no problems gaining the trust of these super young children. Unfortunately, this usually was due to him promising them candy if they came with him. Mm. This is how he gained the trust of two-year-old Miguel de Puello. How do you spell it? There There are three different spellings. I took one of the spellings. One said P-A-O-L-I, which is Paoli, uh, P-A-U-O-L-I, and P-O-L-I. So, three different ways to say this. Poli. That's why I said Paoli. Anyway. Uh, Paoli. That's a fun mixture of all of them. There we go. Paoli. That is not, do not hold me accountable for that. Godino took little Miguel to a remote part of town beat him up, and threw him into a thorny ditch on the side of the road. Holy shit. He's two. Miguel two. is two. He is the, well, the victim is two. He is... Well, yes, I figured. I don't think a two-year-old could beat somebody <laughs> up and throw them in a ditch, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> He's still young. That's the important part. He's still young. Thankfully, a police officer was nearby and heard the little boy's cries and came running. Godino then managed to convince the police officer that he found Miguel like that, and he was only trying to help. Oh, of course. Only trying to help. The officer believed it, and as did Miguel's mother, who then rewarded Godino with some sweets for saving her little boy. Oh, nice. Nice. A year later, year and a half-year-old Anna Neri was hospitalized after a police officer yet again stumbled upon Godino and the child. Neri suffered having her skull caved in with a rock, but thankfully also survived the attack. Oh, good. Godino again talked his way out of trouble, insisting that he had just found her lying on the ground. Once is, is an incident, two... is a little sketchy. A coincidence. Three is a pattern. Yeah. He later confessed that he committed his first murder at the age of nine. Uh, what? He never knew her name, just that he couldn't walk. He claims that he had to carry her to an abandoned plot of land, where he then proceeded to bury her alive after attempting to strangle her. Why? The police never found her, and it was determined that this 
at one point it was determined that this little girl was Maria Rosa Fase, I think, who went missing on March 22, 1906. By the time her family was informed of this, they had already moved back to Italy and a house had been built on top of the supposed burial site. Oh, shit. They never recovered her body. Unfortunately, he started his torturing and killing with small animals around his home. Yeah. On April 5th, 1906, his father found several of their pet canaries dead in a sh- dead in a shoebox with their eyes missing, laying beside Godino's bed. Oh my god. This, on top of Godino's newfound appreciation for masturbating. Oh. Especially in front of his family at the ripe age of 10. What? Left his father feeling a little helpless. Uh. uh, Yeah, you heard that right. He took to the police and signed an official complaint against his son. Uh, translated his 10-year-old son? His 10-year-old son. <laughs> well, at this point, they weren't sure what to do with him. He was beating up on kids. He was being rebellious at school. Fair. He wasn't just, going to school. You're right. I forgot about that. I was thinking <laughs> about the fact that he was masturbating in front of his family. Also that. They couldn't get him to stop. Okay. Yeah, that all makes somewhat sense. Uh, I feel like... Did, I guess therapy wasn't as, uh... I don't think therapy was a thing in the early 1900s. I feel like I'm gonna have to double check on that, but... You're probably right. So the complaint against him read... This is translated into English, because... I can't any other language, apparently... In the city of Buenos Aires, on April 5th, 1906, a person appeared before me and identified himself as Fiora Godino, a 42-year-old Italian immigrant who has been living in Argentina for 18 years. During his testimony, Fiora Godino said that he had a son called Cayetano Santos, who is an Argentinian citizen by birth and who is nine years and five months old. Fior Godino contends that his son is uncontrollable and rebellious and does not respond in any way at all to any discipline of any kind, and he, and so he formally requests that the police take charge of his son and place him in whatever institution they see fit and for as long as they see appropriate. Uh. However, what are police to do with a... Nine and a half year old boy. Right. And like, I feel like he is partially, at least partially, a product of his upbringing. So, yeah. Yeah. On one side, it's not like they could really do a lot for him, considering they were probably the reason why he had such horrible behaviors. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't just his father either, it was also his brothers beating on him like it was not just one it was the entire family because they did not know that he had already become a killer Mm -hmm. they decided to send him to a reform school where he was there for two months before being released back into the community 
It wasn't long before he returned to his usual violent ways, and he, of course, never got in trouble for it and would talk his way out of it because his victims were too young to speak up for themselves. Yeah. On September 9th, 1908, Godino promised two-year-old Severino Gonzalez candies if he agreed to come with him. They went to a warehouse that was across the street from the School of Sacred Heart. He then proceeded to try and drown Gonzalez in a horse trough, of all things. A horse what? A horse trough. Mm -hmm. Okay. The propriety of the property... (laughs) Propriety. (laughs) That's not the right word. Proprietor. (laughs) Yeah, the proprietor of the property, uh, Zakanas Kavidia, hopefully, heard the commotion and went to investigate. He found the two boys soaking wet with Gonzalez just sitting in the water bowl. Godino talked himself out of this by telling a tale of a woman in black and getting there just in the nick of time to save the child from certain death. Okay, sure. The next day, he even led the police to where he supposedly saw this woman in black. And the police don't think, huh, this has happened many times with this child. Um, Not yet. There's no way that he's this fucking lucky. Mm -mm, Not yet. Six days later, he then burned the eyelids off of nearly two-year-old Julio Botel with a cigarette. Holy shit. The child's screams brought his mother running, but of course, Godino was gone before she even got there. His parents eventually sent him to another reform school because they just couldn't handle it, and he was there until he was 15. After his release, he apparently had a new fondness for fire. Oh, yay. On January 17th, 1912, he was caught after just setting fire to a nearby warehouse. When he was questioned, he said, I like to see firemen working. It's nice to see how they fall into the fire. What? It's nice to see how they fall into the fire. Into the fire. Mm -hmm. Because of his young age, he was still able to avoid a prison sentence because no one had been hurt. All the police could do really was to warn him to not set fires. Only four days later, the body of 13-year-old Arturo Laura, Laura was found dead in an abandoned house. He was beaten half-naked and had a cord wrapped around his neck. The police had no idea where to begin searching for his killer. And how old was, um... Fifteen. Okay. What's his name? The victims? No, the... Cayetano Santos Godino. Okay. And he's fifteen at this and point? He is fifteen okay. at this point. On March 7th of that same year, five-year-old Reina Venikhoff was looking through a storefront window when she started screaming out of pain. Someone had caught her dress on fire. <gasps> it gets even sadder. Her grandfather heard her screams from across the street and ran to try and save her. Unfortunately, he didn't make it there because as he was trying to Trying to run there, he was hit and killed by a passing motorist. Oh, Jesus. A nearby policeman threw little Reina to the ground to try and put the fire out. 
she was then sent to the hospital where she died 16 days later. Holy shit. No one noticed Bocadino was there in the crowd watching it all unfold. On September 24th, Godino stuck into a stable. I hate this part. He snuck into a stable nearby and killed a mare with a knife. What? Then on November 8th, he lured another young victim away. Two-year-old Russo Roberts uh, was promised candy. So obviously he willingly followed. Godino took him to a nearby warehouse where he tied the boy's feet together with a rope that he used as a belt. He was then interrupted by a laborer who worked close by and heard the commotion. When the police arrived, he yet again spun a tale of saving this child from certain death. They had nothing concrete on him, despite the fact that he always seemed to be in the right place at the right time to save these children. I'm saying. Uh-huh. His next victim was a young girl who started struggling with him while he was leading her away. His anger issues got the best of him, and he began beating her there in the middle of the street. Oh, shit. A man who was looking out his window was the only reason this little girl survived to see another day. Godino used the commotion to try to get away before the police arrived. And he probably couldn't identify him either. Mm-mm. Nope. <sighs> oh, no. Okay, so... That little boy's name, I said Russo Roberts, but I mix it up. It's Robert Russo. Okay. The police thought that they finally had Godino, and they actually had him in custody, but then released him. Oh, why? As he was awaiting trial. Because he was 15. Oh, I guess. <laughs> he was 15. During this time, he did not stop, though, and he was caught beating a three-year-old girl only a week later. Then on the 20th, a neighbor stopped him from kidnapping and inevitably murdering yet another two-year-old. Oh my, Jesus. Come December 3rd of 1912, Godino was looking for a new victim. Oops, scrolled the wrong way. Mrs. Maria Giordano sent her two-year-old son outside to play by telling him to stay on, you know, the sidewalk. Be a good boy, stay close to the house, yada yada. Yeah. She handed him his red ball and then went about her household chores. Her son, Heswaldo, hope so, was playing with some other neighborhood children when Godino approached him. He promised to purchase the young boy some candy, and he happily complied and followed. Stupid kids. Uh, <laughs> stupid kids. <laughs> stupid kids. I'm, I'm sorry kids for wanting candy. <laughs> I'm I'm victim blaming and blaming them for something I would definitely also follow for candy. <laughs> At this age, currently, currently you candy. Yes. You've got Halloween decorations. <laughs> okay. Yes. Do you see? Do you see my new? Uh, you can't. It's got spider webs on it. Oh. Oh, you you. the one you showed me. Yeah, I sent you a yeah. picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Heswaldo happily complied and followed Godino to the store in order to get the sweets. The two purchased what they walked in for and left. He then led the little boy to an empty building, kind of far away from the neighborhood. Once inside, he shoved the toddler to the floor and tried to choke him with his belt. What? When that didn't work, he then used the belt to tie Heswaldo's hands and feet together. 
He then began br- brutally beating the boy. And when the child passed out, Godino wanted to finish the job and got the bright idea of shoving a nail through his head. He walked out of the building and saw the boy's father. Oh, look, I'm breaking up. And saw the boy's father running towards him, exclaiming, I can't find Heswaldo. Have you seen him? To which Godino replied he didn't know anything about the little boy and that he should go see the police immediately and they will help him. What the fuck? When the older man left, Godino found the nail he was looking for and a brick and went back to finish the job. Holy sh... Hesfaldo's breath was labored and Godino tried to wake him up a few times before using the brick to drive the nail into the middle of Hesfaldo's forehead. He then covered the boy with a piece of tin and left the scene to run home. I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but the Giodinos were his neighbors. Mm-hmm. So he had, by running home, he had a prime view seat of everything. They would see when they found him. They would see when he brought him home. Everything. Yeah, I've depressed myself. At this point, Mr. Diodano had made his way to the general store, where the woman working there remembered seeing his son and Godino, which she did not know Godino's name. She just said the boy with the big ears, and he was like, ah, I know him. Mm-hmm. She saw them purchasing the candy and then walking off hand in hand. Panicked, Mr. Giordano and the police ran back to where he had seen Godino and proceeded to search for his son. When he found him, his body was still warm, so he was hopeful that his son was still with him. However, when he was brought back to the family home, it was determined that he didn't make it. They held a wake for him, and it seemed that the entire neighborhood came to pay their respects to the family. Everyone was mourning the loss of the boy. No one, not even the police, noticed when Godino managed to blend in with the crowd and view his latest victim. He then reached out and touched where the nail had been on the boy's forehead and seemed rather upset that it was gone before running out into the night. The following morning, in specifics, 5 a.m., with witnesses to prove it, the police surrounded the house and arrested Godino with no problems. In fact, in interrogation, Godino spilled everything. Literally telling everything. Jeez. He was charged with three murders and 11 aggravated aggressions. The public cried out wanting capital punishment, but because he was only 15, almost 16 at the time, the judge decided to send him to a mental hospital where he was for two years. During the diagnosis, the doctors were all agreed that he was really way too dangerous to allow back into the, to the public. And they pretty much all agreed that he should spend his life in an asylum. He made repeated attempts to escape and even assaulted some of the other patients. Jeez. At one point, trying to poison one of them. Really? But was thankfully stopped in time. Due to the public outcry, a second trial was held for Godino, where he was sentenced to life imprisonment. He stayed briefly in a prison in Buenos Aires before being transferred in 1923 to the maximum security prison in Ushua, Argentina, which is considered to be one of the most 
one of the toughest prisons in South America. While there, he had no visitors and no letters from his family. In fact, they disowned him completely and moved back to Italy due to the shame that they felt. While in prison, he learned how to read and write, which is good, I guess. But he did continue to try to escape. (sighs) Ever the asshole and maniacal killer, he then killed two cats who served as mascots for the prisons. Oh my god. And then threw them into a fire. Oh my god. The prisoners were outraged and beat him to a pulp. Causing him to have to remain in the hospital infirmary for 20 days. And he deserved every bit of that, in my opinion. He applied several times for parole, but was never granted it for obvious reasons. On November 15th, 1944, at 49 years old, he was found dead in his cell. The cause of death was determined to be internal bleeding due to an ulcer. And three years later, the prison closed. All of the dead bodies of the prisoners were dug up to be relocated. However, Godino's went missing. I did not go into that, but yep, it went missing. According to legend, one of his bones was used to make a paperweight for the last director of the prison. And that is my story. Holy shit. That was was a roller coaster. It was fucked up. Like, I... I, I chose this one because, honestly, this is the one that had the most information. It was still short, but it had the most information of everything that I looked at. I wasn't expecting it to be that. That was that rough. Yeah. What is your story today? Oh, I was supposed to have a story. Well, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, my story is... Oh, that's a fascinating one. Yes, uh, and it goes. Grand Hotel Vienna. Grand Hotel Vienna is what no. it's called. Nice. Even though it is in Argentina. It is My not sources. Argentina? Yes. Oh. My sources are occultworld.com, paranormalstories.blogspot.com, Amy's Crypt. I love Amy's Crypt. Uh, A YouTube video by Amy's Crypt. I love Amy's Crypt. History.com, and also in uh, Ghost Hunters International Season 2, Episode 7. Oh, no wonder this story took a while. Yes. You had to watch things. Yeah. Okay, so, the Grand Hotel Vienna was built by a German family who had arrived in Miramar at the urging of their doctor, who told them of the healing properties of the Mar Chiquita Lagoon as, uh, Miss Polk, I'm assuming that's how you say their last name, suffered from asthma and their son Max had psoriasis. Oh. The family's ailments improved so much after visiting that... Mr. Polk decided to open the hotel, naming it after his wife's hometown of Vienna, Austria. Is Vienna in Austria? Yes. Okay, I don't know why I just questioned that for a second. No, it's Vienna, Spain. 
that might actually be a thing, so I'm not going to, but yeah. <laughs> the hotel contained 84 rooms, a medical facility equipped with doctors, nurses. Get ready for a lot of interesting shit in one oh. one hotel. The hotel contained 84 rooms, a medical facility equipped with doctors, nurses, massage therapists. There was also a library, bank, and a dining room. It was fancy. Like, it had, like, granite floors, marble-lined walls, bronze chandeliers. There was a wine cellar, a bakery, air conditioning and heating, and a large two-sided pool, one side fresh water, one side salt water. It had its own energy-generating plant. So it's a mall. Huh? So it's a mall. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Mm. It's a bougie mall that has a hospital. It's, it's a hotel. Uh, mm. It had garages full of their own fuel supply and a food warehouse. There was even a hairdresser, so kind of. It, mm. it opened in 1945 due to the end of the war and several cases of abuse by the employees of the hotel. The hotel closed just like a year later. Yeah. They left their head of security behind, Martin Kruger. Kruger was a war veteran who had earned many medals during the World War and lived on site inside of the hotel. Okay. In 1948, Kruger was found dead, hunched over a table with a bottle of alcohol, uh, glass, and some cotton resting on it nearby. I know it sounds interesting. Uh, Kruger's death remains a mystery. So I don't know if this was alcohol or alcohol. With well, I mean, either way, it could. I don't know. Theoretically, that's what was on the table. His death remains a mystery because uh, it's not sure whether nobody's sure whether he was murdered or whether um, he completed suicide. But it was determined that he did die from ingesting poison. In 1962 or 63, it wasn't clear. The Palks reopened the hotel, but it didn't stay open for very long. Okay. And in 1977, the whole town was basically destroyed by a flood, except for the hotel, although it was damaged. And some families who had lost their houses were allowed to stay at the abandoned hotel. These were the first people to suggest that the hotel was haunted. Oh. Yes. They now run day and night tours, uh, and lots of visitors claim to have experienced paranormal activity there. Nice. Okay. Currently, along with flood victims, it's said that the hotel is haunted by Martin Kruger and a female ghost who's thought to be Kruger's lover who disappeared in the 1940s. Visitors say that they've heard heavy footsteps all around the hotel, as well as the sound of keys thought to be from Martin. His apparition has also been spotted, usually within his former bedroom, number 106. Mmm. Yes. Many have seen the ghost of a little girl, shadow figures, and light anomalies. There are even frequent reports of disembodied voices, unexplained music, electrical disturbances, and objects such as doors moving on their own. Mm. Okay. Uh, Amy's Crypt visited the hotel and they used a spirit box in an attempt to talk with Martin Kruger. She introduced herself and the spirit box said, hello. She nice. asked if she was speaking to Martin Kruger, and it said no. 
Hell no. She asked it more questions, but it didn't really say anything specific after that. It was all unintelligible. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that happens very often with spirit boxes. Yeah. You'll notice that earlier I said currently the hotel's thought to be haunted by certain spirits. But many believe the hotel was actually built by Nazis who intended for it to be used as a hotel for soldiers and generals or as a compound for prisoners of war during World War II. Or both. There's also a conspiracy that Hitler didn't actually die in Berlin. He fled to the hotel after the war. Some people even believe that the ghost of Hitler is still there. Very weird. Not factually. We'll Um, get into it. We'll get into it, believe me. Uh, So I watched an episode of Ghost Hunters International for this, like I said before. And in it, an author named Harry Cooper said in an interview... I thought you were going to say Harry Potter for a second. No. <laughs> I was like, are we just circling back around? Yes. This fictional character. Okay. So Harry Cooper said in an, in an interview in the show that this conspiracy, which he did not call it a conspiracy, however, I'm calling it a conspiracy, mm-hmm. is that the Spanish spy, there's a Spanish spy who worked for the government, the German government, and he saw Hitler being drugged and removed from the bunker after the war was over. Then Hitler went south, went to South America, and it's thought that he died some, died there sometime in 1962. I'll get mm. into why this is inaccurate soon. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So here are some de- separate areas of the hotel, and like there are different like hauntings or whatever. Yeah. According to Veronica, who is the client that asked them to investigate. The elite wing was the most luxurious, and it's believed that Hitler would have stayed there, in room 61 to be precise. A visitor once took a photograph of the room, and when he saw the picture later, he saw a man looking out the window wearing a military coat and a specific kind of mustache, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. There was a hospital wing, like I said before, which, according to this conspiracy theory, surgery for soldiers, um... And a plastic surgery, oh, which according to the theory was for surgery for soldiers and included a plastic surgery clinic that was used to change the appearance of high-ranking members of the Reich. This is was the, it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the most activity seems to be, according to the show. Mm-hmm. So there's the ground floor of the hospital wing. Sometimes. By the stairs, there's a light that seems to float up those stairs, which the caretaker's daughter herself says that she's seen them, Mm -hmm. um, among others. On the first floor of the hospital wing, it said that there's a presence, like someone walking through the corridor, like heavy boots, which to me sounds like Martin Kruger. Yeah, I would agree. Room 106 of the hospital wing, a woman spent the night and saw a man sitting on the bathtub... That's fine. In room 106, so Martin Kruger's room, a woman spent the night in there and saw a man sitting on the bathtub. That's disturbing. Yes. She was so creeped out because he didn't look like a spirit. He looked like a man. He just looked like a man in her bathroom. So, you know. Yeah. Room 110 of the hospital wing, visitors tend to hear an odd sound similar to a radio that's not working, like like static. Yeah. There's also the workers' wing. It said that all the staff were hired from Buenos Aires so they could keep the locals 
from figuring out what was going on there. You know. It's definitely interesting because the show focuses on the Hitler aspect, whereas everything else I've seen suggests that it's the security guard slash caretaker that was left behind uh, by the oh, family really? who haunts the hotel. Really? And so other wait. random people. So wait, Ghost Adventures fo- focused on the Hitler aspect, or was this another show? It was Ghost Hunters. Oh, Ghost Hunters. Yes, Ghost Why Hunters International. Ghost Adventures. Yes. But yeah, Those they, guys do like their conspiracy theories. I, they do. They really do. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, this one, no. But um, <laughs> it was certainly interesting. I've got to give them that. Mm-hmm. They set up cameras, obviously. Camera one was facing the stairs to try to capture that white light. Camera two was in the courtyard facing the window of room 61, which is... You know, remember the room that Hitler was supposed to be in? Oh, yeah. So they were hoping to see Hitler walk past the room, the window or some shit. I don't know. And camera three was on the first floor where, where those footsteps have been heard. Yeah. So Brandy, Ashley, and Rob do an EVP session in room 106 with the door closed. Rob is asking all these questions like, who are you? Why are you here? And they're not getting a response. And then he says where are the Nazis? And there's a loud thud on the wall right next to them. We're right here. And he asked if the the man was in the bathroom and knocked on the door. Nothing happened until he rattled the doorknob to the bathroom. And then the same thing started to happen to the other doorknob. Mm. Yeah, they opened the door and went out into the hallway, but no one was there. They even tried to recreate it to see if it was just something that happens when both doors are closed. Like, weird stuff happens like that. And they couldn't recreate it. Paul and Barry did an EVP session in the main building dining room. They were trying to reach out to the German spirits that might still be there. (laughs) They asked if there were any Nazis there. And then Paul asked if Hitler himself was there. Right as Barry was saying, come out of the shadows, there was a loud thud. Mm-hmm. Is there a loud thud on your end? Yes. When they were walking in the dining room, there was the sound of, like, broken tiles under their feet. And mm-hmm. Paul notices that the same noise is coming from a different part of the room, but they're the only ones oh. in there. Oh. Yes. So they continue asking questions, and eventually they ask if this, if that place was a Nazi sanctuary, and Paul sees a huge black mass go past one of the windows. Mm. But there, those windows are way too high for somebody to walk by. Yeah. Could have just been a bird, but. I mean, mm, that's a big bird. Big bird. (laughs) It was big bird. Goth big bird. (laughs) Goth Big Goth Bird. Big Bird. <laughs> but the window... Oh, I already said that. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Brandy, Ashley, and Rob go up to the third floor and set up the static meter, which obvious, obviously measures static discharge. So yeah. if a spirit moves past it or interacts with it, it could... Basically, there are five red lights and, like, five green lights on the meter, and Rob asks if there are entities that wish to speak with them turn on a green light. And it does. And they ask any spirits to come forward, saying Hitler's name. More lights turn green. They ask if any members of the Nazi party are there. And a lot more of the lights turn green. 
At this point, Rob starts hearing footsteps and goes to investigate, but there's no one there, of course, and um, one of them was taking full-spectrum shots the whole time, and they didn't capture anything. Yeah. Joe and Dustin checked out the stairwell to see if they could see the lights with Joe on the second floor and Dustin being on the third floor. Joe asks if there's anything if there's anything there to come forward, and that's when Dustin stops him because he says there's something up there with him, and he hears a thumping or banging sound. Mm-hmm. Joe follows him, and they he hears something that sounds like a whisper or a murmuring in one of the rooms. Dustin asks if there's anyone there, and Joe asks if Hitler's there with them, oh and then they hear a thud coming from the ceiling. Really going with this Hitler thing. Really? They are on it. I swear. They're like, any German soldiers here? Hitler, Hitler Fuhrer. Fuck. No. Anyway, uh, so they hear the thud on the ceiling and they go up to the floor above them, which turns out was actually the roof. Okay. So they are going around the corner when Dustin ducks as fast as he can. All these fucking pigeons come flying out. (laughs) Uh, it was so funny um it scared the shit out of them it was great but there was nothing on the roof that could explain the sound that was made because a bird could not make a thud that loud on such a hard material like it was like concrete so oh that yeah part was pretty weird but drywall the, yeah concrete the birds no. was funny yeah brandy ashley and rob do an evp session in room 110 in the hospital wing and they put the static meter in there. They're a big fan of that static meter. Mm-hmm. They ask it to turn red and green lights on, and it does each time that they ask it to do it, like, exactly what they want them to do, or what they ask it to do. They ask it if it wants to communicate to move up to three green lights, and it does. They ask for physical contact, and they all put their hands out, and Brandy mm-hmm. feels a cold spot on her right leg, like, around her knee, and then a sort yeah. of pressure on her leg. They asked for more physical contact, but nothing else happened. They got shy. <laughs> Rob, in his um, Zach Bagans moment, goes off on his own to room 61 in the elite wing. He brought a multi- multifunction meter, a, ca- a deep infrared camera, a bunch of other different cameras. And he sets one camera up to see if anything comes up in the hallway. And then he starts an EVP session. I'm sorry, that's not a Zach Bagans moment. That's a... Where he goes off Aaron on his there. own? No, he sends Aaron. He, he also goes on his own. <laughs> he almost always sends Aaron. Yes, true. But he... <laughs> but in this moment, it was one of those exactly. dramatic, okay. like, I'm the star of the show. Things. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> this one time, I'm the star. <laughs> yeah. he, so he... Oh, God. Okay, so he he asked the spirits to communicate with him, and there were these, like, crashing noises in the hallway. Mm -hmm. And he goes out to see what's going on, and the camera in in the hallway had stopped recording, and the battery was completely drained. Yeah. You know, that happens. Apparently. Because, yeah, you know, it's like, um, it suggests that a spirit's trying to manifest, and he's, like, energy Energy, to draw from, you know... So he puts a static meter out in the hallway and asks if he's like, where are the Nazis who are too afraid to confront him? Like, he's like, All up in the Nazi business again. He, for real. And then he asks where Hitler is. They're all about, they're like, is Hitler here? 
He's taking pictures the whole time and the static meter keeps changing from green to red then green and then it goes all the way up to green and he's like I've never seen it go this haywire before. Mhm. Then he has to speak with speak with Adolf Hitler and his other camera he's taking pictures with dies too. He pulls out his backup to start taking pictures and you guessed it, it dies too. He's like, fine, I don't care. Come on out and fight me. I don't need to take pictures of you. I'm sorry. This is the ghost being like, first of all, I'm not Hitler. Second of all, I'm going to drain all your batteries so you can't do shit. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Dustin and Barry followed up in the same area later since all of his cameras died. Mm -hmm. Uh, They continued asking questions and didn't get any response until they went up to the level above where they heard something that sounded like music and like a murmuring noise, like and part of it sounded like a man's voice, like really deep. Deep, yeah. But as soon as they went up there, sound just stopped. Stop. Yep, I believe it. Paul and Joe did an EVP session in the workers' quarters, trying to get some sort of response from something, and mm-hmm. they hear an odd noise coming from another room. So they follow it, and it leads them to this tunnel-like crawl space where they're like small footprints. As they're filming, something touches Paul's hand, and he's like, oh my god, something just touched my hand. But then he realizes that his hat hit a pipe just above him, and that rust or dirt fell on his hand. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. And then Joe's like, I don't think those are footprints, I think that's just moisture forming on the dirt, so there's nothing here. See- at least they're willing to admit that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Paul and Barry. What the fuck? <sighs> Paul and Barry sent in a little remote control, like, car with a camera stuck on it into the crawlspace tunnel. That's adorable. But it got stuck, so they had to pull it back out. When they listened back at the end of the show, they heard something on it that sounded like breathing. Oh, that's creepy. they couldn't determine what it was, but it was creepy. Yeah. In the end, they believe that the hotel is haunted because they did capture a picture with one of the infrared cameras. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like a picture of the cameraman and there's a bed and there's like this figure sitting on the bed. Oh. It's like see-through. Yeah. It was interesting. It it was probably just dust, but it was interesting. So, because of that, at least partially because of that, they believe that the hotel is haunted, but they said they couldn't get any evidence that Hitler's spirit was there. And here's why. (laughs) He died in his bunker in 1945. It's been confirmed. (laughs) I mean... The thing is, the thing about this episode is that it was... It's from 2010. Yeah. So I'm giving, I'm going to put that partially, saying that's partially why. I don't, but he definitely died in 1945. And for some proof, in a scientific study published in the European Journal of Internal Medicine in May 2018, French scientists analyzed a set of teeth that were entrusted to a Russian interpreter in 1945 that matched Hitler's dental records, including mm-hmm. some skull fragments, and they determined the cause of death was cyanide and a gunshot wound to the head, meaning Hitler really did die in 1945 by suicide in that bunker. Yep. Yep. So, yep. 
it might really be haunted, but there's just no proof that has anything to do with Hitler or Nazis. And that Unless... might... That might just be a rumor that was started during the time because the family was German and Argentina went to war with Germany. Like, they le- leading into the year of the hotel opening up, so there was bound to be mm-hmm. some distrust of Germans during the time. Oh yeah, but anyway, that's the Grand Hotel Vienna. <laughs> they were like I cannot even tell you I bought this episode because I was like there's not enough here let me watch this it was all about Hitler and Nazis <laughs> all of it they didn't even I, mention yeah. Martin Kruger the, the truth yeah they didn't even not, did not even mention it I, I I both love and hate ghost shows that do that because one you're getting a side that isn't talked about a whole lot yeah but then you're not getting the side that's the truth (laughs) i literally anything that i could find on it there was nothing about i mean there were slight rumors that hitler was had escaped and that he was really he was really hiding out in South America and stuff like that which apparently is an extremely common theory that people have but I have never heard this theory before you've never heard my life no yeah because I'm the only thing I've ever heard is the sign that not even the scientific proof that he killed himself but that he yeah that he yes yeah. He died in that bunker with his wife of like two days. Yeah. <laughs> with with his wife with that his was dog his girlfriend that, two that days ago. Dog. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Wow. Yeah, that's that's all I got. Just I'm speechless. That that was also a roller coaster. That yeah, it was very <laughs> mm. Hitler. I mean, they didn't go full Zach Bagans or anything saying, like, come fight me, you Nazi fuck, or anything like that. (laughs) Which definitely would have been great. I would have been, this is the best show I've ever seen. But they were definitely, like, they called him a monster, so that was fun. Oh, well, I mean, that's because he was a monster, so. Oh, for sure. For sure. Okie doke. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Miss Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Miss and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to misfortunes at gmail.com. Also, please check out our website, which is mythsandmisfortunes.com. Please. Also, our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please... We implore you, we threaten you, don't forget to raise, review, and subscribe. <laughs> we threaten we you, threaten so you. says. Okay, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, goodbye. Bye. Bye.